Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. If you've got a Bible, can you grab it and go to John chapter 15? John chapter 15, I'll explain what's going to happen. John chapter 15. If you haven't met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. It is lovely to have you with us. A very warm welcome to you, whether it's your first time or your hundredth time with us. Glad you are here this morning. All right, let me explain kind of what's happened, where we're up to. Uh, beginning of this year, which, do you know, is rapidly over. Halloween was whatever, one night ago, two nights ago. Christmas carols are here. From now until the end of the year, you'll be sick of them. And then 2014 is over. But right back at the beginning of 2014, in January, we began a sermon series looking at the Gospel of John. And we've been planning through it the year. We're going to get most of it done by December, and we'll finish it off into the new year. And we've made it to chapter, back end of chapter 15 I'm going to handle today, and the little first few verses of chapter 16. And what we've reached here is basically, it's the end of Jesus' life. Um, we've had uh, the Last Supper. He's washed the disciples' feet. Uh, John 13, that was, that great act that's kind of known an act of humility and servanthood, showing the disciples how they live. And then the next few chapters, 14, 15, 16, and 17, are basically Jesus' last words to his followers. Very important words. If you've got one of those flash Bibles where Jesus' words are in red, all of these chapters are, will have read. They'll all be read because they're just Jesus' last words to his disciples. And then chapter 18, it kicks back into the narrative and we have basically his arrest, betrayal, arrest, death and resurrection. So we're right in the middle of what he's saying to his disciples. Um, uh, last two weeks we've had uh, Jonathan spoke to us about Jesus proclaiming to his disciples that he was the way, the truth and the life saying he was the only way to God. He, he was God himself, and if you want to know God, you have to come through him. It was all about him. It all pointed back to him. There's no other way. Jesus is the only way to know God, to know the Father. He said that was the proclaim he made about himself. And then we look to the next section in the beginning of John 15 um, that Mike spoke about where Jesus proclaimed, I am the true vine, the symbol of connecting to God. The vine was an old symbol of Israel. And you say, well, I'm, I'm the true vine. I'm the one that you need to be connected to personally. Again, reiterating that fact. It's all about a personal connection, a relationship with Jesus. That's what it's about. It's not about doing stuff. It's about being connected and having a relationship with Jesus. And we're just going to pick it up now, uh, beginning at uh, the back end of chapter uh, 15. Um, I'll start at verse uh, 18 when I start reading. But let's just remind you of a context. This book has been written by the disciple John, who turns up in the gospel. He's often referred to as the disciple Jesus loved. He doesn't directly name himself. Um, but he, he wrote this, so he knew Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He experienced the things that we're, we're reading about. He was there. He saw this stuff. He heard these words. And he's writing this at the end of his life. They believe, church historians believe he was based in Ephesus at this point, the city, um, Asia Minor. And he's writing it, and he's very old. And by this point, the other one, his friends, the other disciples of Jesus, they believe were all dead by this point. John was the last living of the original 12. He was the only one left, kind of, when he was writing that. And what we can learn from church history is the remaining 10 or 11, if you had Judas, but we don't, you know, he's gone, but we got the other guys who were there, part of that team, they were all dead, but they all died in not particularly nice ways. We find out Philip, Andrew, and Peter were crucified. James and Thaddeus were stoned to death. Nathaniel was flayed alive. Simon the Zealot was shot to death with arrows. Thomas was disemboweled with spears. And Matthew was stabbed to death. All of them died 
as martyrs proclaiming the good news of Jesus and refusing to budge on that. You know, we proclaim Jesus and people would ask them to stop doing it or deny what they, they said and they wouldn't do it. And as a result, they were killed. And, and the church at the time was going through a period of being persecution, opposition. There were forces coming against it. Some of it extreme in terms of death. Some of it maybe not so extreme, but still opposition arrayed against the church. And John is writing into this context. A so part of the purpose of his gospel is to give courage to believers who are facing up about this, giving them the good news of Jesus, which will help them in this time. And we pick, when we read this, I just want you to bear that in mind, because you know, when you, you read some passages and they're wonderful, you read some passages and you think, man, why is that in there? <laughs> why did they include that? Why did he say that? Well, let's just pick this up at verse 18, and you'll, you'll get where I'm going. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know me, oh, sorry, do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to, to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you will remember that I told them to you. 1793, at the siege of Toulon, Napoleon was leading the Republican army against uh, the royalists there. And he knew if he was going to win the battle, he had to have a battery of his artillery on the hill to pound the city. But he knew to put a battery of his artillery on the hill, um, it would be in a very exposed position, which means it, was, it could be shot at by the enemy. And he said, I need this battery manned. So I can win the battle, but I realized putting, up, putting men up there puts them in danger. So basically, he put a sign up outside the artillery battery that said, the battery of men without fear. And it said there was a queue of soldiers volunteering to man that battery for Napoleon. He found a way of giving his men courage to face opposition, to face danger, and to face possible death and when we look at this today I want to look at that in the same way because to be a Christian requires courage it is not the soft option in life 
It is not the easy road. It is not the one that is the most comfortable. If you truly read what Jesus said and you look at the lives of his followers written out in the New Testament and then follow church history through to this day, it is not something that is for the faint-hearted. It is not something for people who are looking for the easy out. It is most definitely something for the weak, for those who are then made strong in Christ. And it requires great courage. And as we read this, we've got hatred coming up, we've got opposition coming up, we've got persecution coming up from the very lips of Jesus, telling them what it's going to be like for his followers. So the disciples have had their feet washed, they've had their meal with Jesus, and he's teaching them, and he's told them about bringing the way, the truth, and the life. And I imagine if this was kind of like a big public address, that would be a whooping moment. Imagine him on the stage... You know, a CEO of a corporation announcing new things. They'd be like, yay, I'm the way. Yes, you are, Jesus. And he said, I'm the true vine. Be connected to me and you will be fruitful. And that fruit will last. And they could be going, yes. And then he says, the world's going to hate you. I can't imagine much whooping at that point. I can't imagine the, yeah, really? When you say hate, do you mean love and adore? No, he means hate. He says, actually, there's going to be... Opposition, and what is what we're going to look at is the causes of this opposition to um, the believers. And the first one is that the believer, those who follow Jesus, will have a new citizenship. They will have a new citizenship. And the way Jesus talks about it, he's saying opposition to you is inevitable. That's the tone of the passage. It's going to happen. It's not something it might, you know, 50-50 chance, 60-40. No, it's going to happen to you. And the reason is, the first reason is that we are new citizens, that believers are new citizens. And Jesus wants to eliminate the surprise factor. Do not be surprised when this happens to you, is kind of the tone he's saying. Don't be sitting and go, I can't believe I'm facing opposition for being a believer. It's actually, it's going to come. It's part of it. And he has, Jesus assumes the world's going to do that. The world's going to hate you. I don't know how many times it says hate in the first couple of verses, but it's more than a couple, isn't it? The world is going to hate you. And when Jesus talks about world, he talks about, in John's Gospel, it's a reference to the created order that is in rebellion to God. So it's kind of everything in creation that is in open rebellion to God. Man being kind of the pinnacle of that. And it's kind of borne out the fact, Jesus says that, I chose you out of this world. And so there is, what he's pointing at is a fundamental shift in who you are. As a believer, he's talking to his disciples and said, there is something fundamentally different about you in relation to the world. You are new citizens. He said, I chose you out of the world. I have taken you from here where you were in the world, and I've put you somewhere new. If we read kind of around the New Testament, it it describes it in many ways. John chapter 3, it talks about being born again. Something different happens to you. Jesus says you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. So something fundamental happens and you're now in a different place where you are. Um, Philippians 3 talks about being heavenly citizens. You're citizens of heaven now. You're not citizens of this world of earth. You have a citizenship that is somewhere else. You're different for that. Ephesians 2 talks about you are dead. You were dead. And now you're alive. That is one of the most profound differences we can get as in, in humans, isn't it? For being a dead person and a living person. Since you were dead, you're now alive. Colossians talks about being rescued from a kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the sun. 
So you're once in darkness over here. Says, I've taken you and I've put you in the kingdom of the Son. Uh, 1 Peter 2 talks about, he says, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Something different. You're set apart. You're now a people who belong to God, he says. No longer part of this world. This difference is completely fundamental. You are different to the world. And because of that, the world is going to hate you because you're not part of it anymore. You might be in it. You might look like it, you might dress like it, you might sound like it, but there's something deep down that has happened in you, in Christ, that has changed you and thus created a barrier to you. Now, this doesn't give you a position to be superior or self-righteous or actually I'm better than anybody else because I'm a Christian or we're part of the church and we're, we're, kind of, we're, we're one up from you because Jesus very clearly says, I chose you. You didn't choose me because you're smarter than anyone else or you've got things sorted out or you're more spiritually enlightened. If we take those other things, you were dead. Jesus said, I I chose you because I love you and I wanted you to be mine. But what that means is that you are out of step with the world. There's something fundamental that puts you out of sync with the world. Out of step. You're not quite in touch. You're separate. And as the result of that, the world will hate you. That is the result of the opposition. It won't recognize you as part of the world. It says, actually, they'll be different. And I don't know if you've experienced this. One thing I was thinking about, which is a, it's the best illustration I come, could come up with, but it's not perfect. But hopefully it will illustrate this kind of, when you're different, opposition can come. But when I was at um, Sixthorn College, I was doing my A-levels. And I had a friend there who was doing his A-levels, and we got to the end, and we both were going to university. I was going to train to be a primary school teacher, and he was, I can't even remember what degree he was going to do, but we ended up traveling, going to the same city to do our degrees, our respective training. But the difference was, I went to one university, and he went to the other university in the city. And we agreed, kind of over the summer, we said, well, let's meet up at the beginning of the new term when we both kind of settled into our digs and just, you know, see how we're doing. We'll have a catch-up. We're both in the same city. We've moved from our homes, our families. And it was hysterical when we first met up because he went to this university and I went to that university. And suddenly, it was like, we're meeting for drinks. It's like, you're on the other team now. You go, and I, <laughs> I went to the old poly university that suddenly become a new university. It still said the poly on the front of the buses. But we were, a new, we were now at a university as well. But he went to the proper university. And it was suddenly like, looking at me, it's like, well, you, you know, you don't go to the right university. And I was like, yeah, you're one of those stuck up, those university people. And it was like, we'd suddenly, we were friends like months ago. And suddenly, we, because we'd gone into different places, there was now this opposition and this tension between us because we were different to one another. And although it was ridiculous, but it's, there's a sense of that. You're out of sync with the world. You're in it. You're part of it, but you're no longer of it anymore. And because of that new citizenship you have, you, the world will hate you. The world will reject you. And we see it all over the world. Anything that is different, you get opposition. When, when fu- fundamental difference comes, there's opposition and there's clashes. Now, being a new citizen brings on to our next thing. You have a new sovereign ruler so we're citizens of a new kingdom but we also have a new ruler because we've come into a new kingdom with a new king our king is jesus now he's the one who kind of rules over us reigns over us that's what it means to become a christian he is now lord of our lives he's the one calling the shots and as we read on because of our association with jesus opposition comes it says there you know looking at verse 
20, 21. Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Jesus has already been persecuted. We know the ultimate one's coming. Read on a few chapters. He says, they did it to me. They're going to do it to you. And it says, um, if they persecute, they'll persecute you. Uh, But all these things they do on account of my name. Verse 21. Account of my name. It says, because you're associated with the king, because you bear his name, what are we? Christians. We bear his name. We bear his mark. Because you're associated with the king, he says, the opposition is going to come on account of my name. They're persecuting you because of me, Jesus said, because you're connected with me. And that's where it's going to come. It's no servant's greater than his master, which is referring back to what Jesus said in um, chapter 13, which we looked at. And he's saying, because they've, they've gone after me, and they've hated me, and they've attacked me, and they've, they've, they've put opposition to me, they're going to do the same to you. You're going to receive the same level of antagonism that Jesus did. And Jesus says also, so they're going to, they're going to come against you because of me, or just because of me and my name, but also because Jesus says, actually, because I expose evil among them. He says, here, he says he exposes evil with his words and his works. Jesus talks about the words I have spoken to them, Prove them guilty. It says the works I've done amongst them, referring to his, his miraculous works and his teachings and all the things he's kind of said and done, his lifestyle, it creates opposition. If you don't believe me, just read some of the Gospels. Jesus does stuff, which you think on the surface, that's got to be good, but people get upset with him about them. Things he says, things he's done, they're, they're coming against him. And what he's kind of, what's John's driving that in this passage? He's basically saying, there are people there who, it doesn't say just because Jesus came they were guilty. It's basically saying, Jesus came, God the Son came to earth and stood in front of people as, as the creator of heaven. He came there, he was there as a man. He, walked, he performed miracles and he spoke the very words of God to them and they rejected him. And he says, boy are they guilty because they had, they had the very words of God. They had me, I was amongst them and they still rejected me. They are guilty. They saw his works and they reject him. If they reject him, they reject the Father. They're basically just saying there is no excuse for their sin. There is no excuse for their sin. His actions will work it out. He quotes, um, I think it's verse 25, he quotes a psalm, a messianic psalm, Psalm 69, uh, written by David, who's seen as a type of Christ in the Old Testament. And he's basically, David's saying in his psalm, they rejected me without cause. Friends turned against him. People, opposition came against him for no discernible reason. And Jesus says, that's just like me. He fulfills that. That's me. There's no good reason to attack me. He hasn't done anything wrong. He is sinless. But actually, opposition came. And so the very presence of Jesus exposes evil. Proclaiming the gospel, doing the things of the kingdom, just exposes evil and provokes it in people. But then at the end there, he says, actually, it's not all bad. And he says, but that when the helper comes, he says, I will not leave you alone. Jesus already told them that the disciples that he's going away. He says, I'm going away. If I was one of the canny disciples, I said, right, if you're going away, the opposition should stop because you're not here anymore. They can't oppose you if you've gone, Jesus. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to send another who will be with you, the helper, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus will be in you. And so actually I'm going to be right there with you. So that opposition is going to continue because I am present with my church by my Spirit and it will, the Spirit enables us to bear witness. That's one of its roles. Enables us to bear witness about Jesus and tell people about it. He says, that, that persecution is going to come. That persecution is going to come because of my presence amongst you, because I am here with you, present at all times. And so 
being the king, being in this place, they're going to see that and opposition will come. And lastly, um, oh no, I've missed that bit. Let me just go back. I don't know, if you ever prayed, just think about this, if you ever prayed things like you want to be more like Jesus or you want to be more full of the Spirit or you want to see more things happen of Jesus in your life, who's prayed prayers like that at any point of their life, any time? Brilliant. You do realize and that one of the outcomes of that is, one, you think God will move and see things happen, but you do realize that will then increase the opposition against you. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> Lord, I want to be more like you and so people can oppose me more. And so, because <laughs> that's what's going to happen. Jesus is saying, actually, if you're full of my spirit and you're bearing my name and you're doing the things of the kingdom and you are being effective, opposition will rise against you. Opposition will come against you. It will increase. And so I don't think it's a bad thing to pray. It's good. Let's be aware of all the consequences of what we're praying. Because Jesus is basically saying, don't be surprised when it comes upon you. Third one, last one. A new commission. Those last few verses. He's basically saying, this is what you've got to do. And it, interesting how we start. Look at verse 16, 16 verse 1. It says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. In Jesus' minds, the greatest danger a disciple could face is not death. It's not death. What is it? Falling away. That's the greatest danger. I've said this not so you'll be safe and live to a ripe old age and die in your bed, age 90-something, with you know, children, grandchildren all around you, and it'll be wonderful. No, I'm saying this so you don't fall away, because that's the danger, that you forsake the faith, you fall away. He's saying, no, that, that, that's, not your, that's not what I've called you to do. I've called you to proclaim my name, regardless of what the opposition is, and not fall away in the face of whatever comes at you. And this opposition says it's going to come in all areas of life, and some of it will be respectable. Sometimes we can sort of think opposition is all, kind of we almost caricature it as the worst possible kind of, you know, fangs and horns. And, but actually it can come in a very respectable face. It says it will be put out of the synagogues. Well, that's religious opposition there. They'll put you out of the synagogues, a place of worship. The religious places. And more than that, the synagogues, as we looked at back at the beginning of John, the synagogue wasn't just a place where they went to kind of worship. It was actually the hub, the center of the community. Synagogues could also be places of kind of community, of sometimes of commerce, of, of social interaction. Some even functioned as kind of mini hospitals. Some even had libraries as part of it where they collected kind of scrolls to read and things like that. So it was more than just like we think a church building. It was bigger than that. It says they're going to put you out of that. So they're going to ostracize you from the community, being cut off from things you would, kind of, you would take for granted and interact with in your community. And people who do that would probably have a devout belief in what they're doing. They, they would fully believe what they're doing is right. They have this irony that actually if someone kills you, just, just think of the ramifications of that. The hour is coming when whoever kills you, not who ignores you or doesn't talk to you or even fires you from your job or whoever kills you will think they're offering a service to God. So opposition can come in a very devout, 
righteous almost way. That's what they think they're doing the right thing. And that could result in your death, Jesus is saying to them. They honestly think they're doing the right thing. They think they're, they're actually serving God. Think of the death of Stephen at the hands of Paul was there, wasn't he? They thought they were doing the right thing and they murdered one of the, the church. Uh, Acts 7, uh, that is. But behind it all is the fact that they, they hate God, they hate the Father. And, and so from our point of view, often persecution can be state-led, state-induced, state, you know, the, the government are behind it because they think it's right. But behind that all, though, it is endurable. It says, but I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I've told them to you. That even in the face of opposition, even in the face of whatever comes, he's just saying, actually, it is possible to endure through it. It is possible to stand it up. That's why I'm telling you these things now. And that list I read to you at the beginning about what happened to the 12, they all did it. They all endured to the end. Horrific for some of them. Even John, as he's writing this, they tried to kill him. They tried to boil him alive and it didn't work. That's when they sent him in exile. They sent him in exile and they tried to boil him alive. It didn't work. So that's why they sent him in exile to the island of Patmos where he had the revelation and we get the book Revelation from. So even John himself goes through this. Um, same scenario as well as the other 12. And so Jesus is kind of setting them up, saying this is what's going to happen with you. Let me just apply. So I have three things to just talk about kind of to apply as we finish. First one, Jesus knows about the opposition. Jesus knows about the opposition. We, let's be honest, Western... Christianity, UK Christianity, when we think about kind of opposition persecution, it doesn't seem to amount to a whole lot compared to the world. We can have, um, it can be extreme. I was looking at some websites, so the Persecuted Church, um, Open Door, another one, just looking at sort of persecution around the world. And some places it's extreme. There's, if you go on the Open Door website, there's actually, they've graded certain countries. And there's a grade of kind of from... I forgot what, there was extreme severe. There's another one after extreme. Another kind of, I don't know what the level they called it, but it was like, I don't know what was more extreme than extreme, but they obviously had to grade it out. And there's one country in the world where opposition and persecution was that. And they had extreme severe and they graded it down. There was, I think, 50 countries around the world where opposition to the church was that way. There are closed countries. There are places where you will fear for your life if you converted to Christianity. We read in the news about Islamic State um, and the advance that's happening places like Iraq and what's, what's going on, what's happening to Christians there. There is extreme um, uh, persecution. There's an article I found in The Independent written by an ex-chief rabbi, of all people, and it, it, the, the title is Christians, the World's Most Persecuted People. Um, and you read that and you think, something is happening, but sometimes we don't feel it here. I... I I can tell someone what I do for a job and I have no real fear of them actually doing anything. Mainly they're probably shrugging indifference, but I don't fear being thrown in jail or killed. Um, but we do face levels of opposition here. They're often much more subtle in the West. The rising tide, the erosion of marriage. Legally, what's happening in this country, the redefinition, more and more things coming. Um, I read a bunch of articles about um, people who were... Um, one lady who was um, a nurse who was fired because she offered to p- uh, pray um, for um, one of her patients. 
there was a school receptionist who had sent an email to a friend basically asking them to pray for their sick child and was threatened with the sack because of doing that. Um, and a foster carer who was told she'd be struck off the carer list for allowing a Muslim girl under her care to convert to Christianity. And so there, there are things going <clears throat> on in this part of the world. I know they're not the same level, but the point is God knows all about them. God is not indifferent to suffering. God is not indifferent to what is happening into his church in this nation or any other nation of the world. And so he knows about it. Sometimes we can read things, particularly the hard stuff from closed countries and persecution, and it can, kind of, it can seem so stark to what we're dealing with now. But we, the thing I think we should take away is God knows about it. He's aware of it. And I think we have a response to pray. Sometimes you can, I read the stuff as I was looking at this thinking... <clears throat> It's so outside my kind of realm of experience. What do I do? And I believe God would call us to pray. Respond in prayer. I mean, we can't necessarily go or do. Some people might be called to do that. But for here, for now, in this moment, there is an optimal moment to pray for the persecuted church, for those who are actually facing threats of their life around the world. And maybe I'd love to pray for now. Do you want we pray now? Just talking about I think it would be good just to pray for men and women who share the same citizenship as we do. They may speak different languages and we'll never see them and they live in different countries and they be different ethnicities to us. But we share the same citizenship and we have the same king. And I'd just love to pray for that. Lord God, we thank you for your church around the world. We thank you for every man, woman and child who call on your name as Lord. Those who serve you. Those who are, are our brothers and sisters in you. For men and women, we will never meet in this life, Lord God. We ask for your mercy and your grace upon them. We ask your boldness on them to stand firm in the face of trial. Lord God, and we ask it for us too in the face in our kind of more comfortable Western Christianity. God, we ask you give us grace and boldness to stand firm. And Lord God, we ask that you would, yeah, would your gospel go forth in these places. I read somewhere an article that something like there was something like 100 million believers in China or something like that. The church had exploded in the face of intense persecution and communism. Lord God, and we say, God, build your church in those places. Lord God, would your gospel prevail uh, in face of great opposition and great trial? And God's people said, Amen. Second thing, Jesus faced opposition. When we think, if you just, we're going to go through it in the rest of John, but when you think about what Christ himself faced personally, it is way more than we ever will, no matter what happens to us. The most horrific things could happen in this nation and happen to the church and happen in our lives in the name of opposition and persecution, but put next to Christ, they will never compare the sinless Son of God, God the Son, came to earth, lived as a man. He was betrayed. He was, he was um, opposed by the religious authorities who were meant to worship him. He was opposed by pagan authorities, betrayed by a friend, turned away. His parentage was questioned. He was considered a lunatic by his family. People lied about him. He went to court. It was a false mockery of a trial. He was beaten. He was flogged. He was led out. He was crucified. Murdered cruelly, he faced the wrath of his father in our place for our sin, which is way beyond any kind of physical thing. And he ultimately died and went to the grave. And he faced the ultimate opposition so that we do not have to. 
he faced that ultimate level of opposition. So no matter what, we, what, what comes our way, it will never be that. Because that's actually what we deserved. What Jesus faced is ultimately what we deserve for our rebellion against the Holy God. And Jesus knows that's where he's going. He knows he's going to take that in their place. And he says, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face trial. Do not fall away. Because he faced the ultimate. He faces what we will never have to face ever in this life or the one beyond. Which is a wonderful thing, a great blessing and something to rejoice in. The third and final thing. Jesus will bring victory over opposition. Matt didn't know what I was going to speak about today. But it was great, those songs, wasn't it? (laughs) Christ is victorious. He's already won the victory. We're merely going through a mopping-up operation until it's all consummated. On the cross, Christ said, it is finished. He rose from the grave victorious. He came back. He ascended to heaven. He sent the Spirit. He said, I'm coming back for you all soon. He says, so Christ will ultimately bring victory. And even in the most extreme circumstances, Christ will ultimately have the victory. And we might see it in this life. There are stories of miraculous people, miraculous being saved from people trying to kill them and all sorts of wonderful stories, which I praise God for, angelic appearances and amazing things I've read about and heard people talk about, which is wonderful. But even when, even if that doesn't happen, and there is no salvation in this life. Jesus still has the victory in eternity. And one day we will be part of that. So for us sitting here, let's not be surprised when we hear about opposition. Let's not be surprised when we face it. Let's not be surprised at the next dumb idea our government comes up with that <laughs> goes against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not be surprised. Let's not be indifferent, but let's not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial you are facing. <laughs> as if something strange was happening to you, finding the Bible. Let's not be indifferent. And I think we should pray, and we should pray for action. I read in Acts 4 this morning, after the church faced intense persecution, there was um, Peter and John had healed a man who had been lame for a long time. That's a win. They'd healed him. Brilliant. They'd proclaimed the gospel. They got dragged before the authorities, beaten, and told, don't do it again, the preaching and the healing thing. They went back to the church, told them what would happen. They prayed, but what did they pray for? Boldness to keep going. If I'd been leading that prayer meeting and Peter and John had come and said, guess what, we just got beaten to a pulp for proclaiming the name of Jesus. I'm not sure the first thing I'd have said was, well, let's pray so we can go out and do more of that. <laughs> but that's what the church is. So they prayed for boldness. That's actually what they asked for, for boldness to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus. And there are times of persecution of the church. If you go flick back to Acts chapter 2, it says actually the church had great favor. So there are times of great favor for the church, which is also wonderful. And the church was multiplying and growing, which is also good. Let's pray for that. But even in the face of opposition, they prayed for boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. So let's be a church that do that, that pray for the boldness of Jesus. So whatever happens, the good news of Jesus goes forth. No matter what you face, the good news of Jesus go forth. And let's be a church that perseveres, that keeps going. Jesus said, I've told you these things so you don't fall away. And do you know what? If we read church history, none of those guys fell away. None of them. They, they, they stood strong in the, and they all died for their faith. 
church history tells us. And so, and when you look at those disciples, when you look at them, sometimes we give them all a bum rap. Doubting Thomas, Peter sank. You know, they're all so dumb, they don't get it. Peter's saying, no, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. And Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. You know, all this stuff's going on. They, they, they're just ordinary guys. But none of them fell away. They persevered at the end. And I think if they can do it, dumb old disciples that they are, we can do it. <laughs> we can do it. We have the same spirit. We have, we have the same word. We can do it in the face of whatever comes. So let's be a church that perseveres. Amen. Do you want to stand up? I'm just going to pray to finish. Matt, do you want to... Come get ready. I'm going to pray like they did in Acts 4. I'm going to pray for boldness for us as a church to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to do it lovingly and sensitively, but do it unflinchingly and courageously. Because we live in a time, we're probably more of an Acts 2 time, where things seem to be going well for us in this nation generally, comparative to others. But it could change. We could suddenly find ourselves in an Acts 4 situation. But as we stand now, let's pray for boldness that God would use each of us in the spheres we walk in to shine his light. We bear his name. We're part of a new citizenship of a new kingdom. We have a new commission that Christ has given us to go. And let's pray that we will persevere to the end. We will not take our faith lightly and kind of treat it with contempt, but actually boldly persevere and cling on to Jesus with everything we've got. So, Lord God, I want to thank you that you saved us, Lord. I want to thank you that you caused us to be born again. Lord God, I want to thank you that, that we are part of your kingdom now. We have been fundamentally changed and we are now out of step with this world We have a new king we follow, Lord, and I thank you for saving us. I thank you for dying that death in our place so that we don't have to. We do not have to face this, and whatever we face in this life will never be as bad as that. And what we face in eternity is always going to be so much better. Lord Jesus, I thank you for that. And God, I ask you to give us as a church, as lots of individuals that make up one body, give us boldness and courage to stand unflinchingly for you standing up for you when we if we have to stand up at work we have to stand up in our social groups whatever that means that we would stand in prayer with those around the world who are persecuted that that when push comes to shove we won't be found wanting we'll be found in you lord god and that's an act of grace god and i ask you give that to us lord give us the faith to carry on we thank you for the example of john we thank you for the example of the other 12 lord and all that they did lord jesus and i pray that your name would be made glorious And I pray that you would cause this church and the churches in this nation to multiply greatly. Alpha course coming, I pray you would save souls. There are many churches running many alphas all over this nation. Save souls, Lord. I pray you'd bless and multiply churches all over this nation. In the cities, in the villages, in the towns, God, that there would be a rising tide of Christianity. I'm jealous of what I hear about in China. 100 million? Just take a few of them. (laughs) Lord Jesus. We pray, God, that you would save this nation. Yeah, for your glory, Lord. God's people said, Amen.